Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith with our special Canada Day edition of the show, and it's a Canada Day unlike any other. British Columbia has been baked with a record-breaking heat wave over the last several days. It is tinder dry out there. The winds are picking up. No precipitation in sight. It is a perfect storm for wildfires to erupt in our province, and that is exactly and tragically what we're witnessing in British Columbia today. 53 separate new wildfires have ignited in our province just over the last two days, scorching a lot of the interior. The most distressing news is the village of Lytton, which during this heat wave uh, recorded the highest temperatures ever recorded in Canadian history, three days in a row. And now the village is has been uh, engulfed with fire. Have a listen to uh, some of this tape of Lytton residents on the desperate efforts to evacuate the village. The thing that was going through my mind was not just panic, but let's get everybody out. Let's get out of here. Let's knock on the neighbor's doors and let's just go. There was no time to really think. You just had to just pack, get your stuff in your vehicles, check your neighbors and go. Our landlord just comes busting in our door and he's like, you guys, you guys, you guys need to get your stuff together. You need to go now. And if he didn't come 15, 20 minutes later, we would have been in the house caught on fire. Okay, those uh, residents speaking to Global News. Let's check in now with Scott Hildebrand. Scott is the Chief Administrative Officer for the thompson Nicola Regional District, and I'm very grateful to him for taking some time. Scott, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. I know you must be exhausted. Where, where, are, you, where, where are you at right now? Uh, our Emergency Operations Center is based in Kamloops, uh, downtown Kamloops, and uh, that's where we're, we're working from. What, what, Scott, what can you tell us about the current status of the situation with the fire? Uh, it's a, extremely serious. We've been, uh, you know, in the last week or so working on multiple fires um, in the region. And then, of course, late yesterday afternoon got the uh, the word that Lytton was on fire and our priorities shifted as best we could. And we're doing everything we can to support that community in the surrounding area. Is there any indication of how this fire started? There's been lots of conversation and nothing confirmed yet, but uh, perhaps there could have been a spark from a train. Um, we just don't have confirmation of that yet because the, the, the fire nearby uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't close enough to, uh, to make that happen in Lytton, So, Okay, so was this, okay, this sounds like it was not a situation of like a forest fire that moved too close to the town. It, it sounds like this is a fire that may have started right in the village. Is that right? That's possible. Very possible, and that's yeah. what's being uh, looked at now. Okay. What is the status of the village? Do you have any any indication or update on, on what has happened there? Well, we immediately put out orders to evacuate, but of course um, it was only minutes uh, that people needed to react. So um, people, the 250 or 300 people that live in Lytton, of course, evacuated. There's still some people in the area that we're working with trying to provide transportation, safe transportation to get them out there, get get them out of there. Um, uh, we're, we're working with all resources from the province to EMBC to our local first responders and, uh, of course, BC Fire to try to create strategies that are going to be efficient and helpful to our to our residents. Okay. Was there any effort to put the fire out when it, when it started? Like, you guys got a fire hall there or any kind of emergency response? There's a fire brigade there, and, of course, they, they probably gave 110%, but, I mean, they needed support. So I know Merit, um, Merit, uh, Fort Fraser, Fort George, I'm sorry, Fraser Valley uh, Regional District, they came in as well to help. Uh, Ashcroft came in 
uh, we're getting you know significant support from areas around around Lytton. Okay, it just sounds like it was impossible to stop though. Once it started in the village, it it, it seemed like it moved moved extremely quickly through the village. Yeah, you mentioned that at the beginning. It's it's extremely dry in there. It, it happened so quickly that people were just worried about getting out of there safely, and uh, that's that's what what happened. This is, a, this is a tragic situation. Speaking to Scott Hildebrand, Chief Administrative Officer, Thompson Nicola Regional District. Scott, you mentioned there are around 250 people live in Lytton. Has any has everyone been accounted for? That's our problem right now. Is it happens so quickly that uh, to register these folks and get in communication with everybody has been very difficult because some went to the Lower Mainland, some went to Boston Bar, some are in Kamloops, some are in Merritt. So uh, apparently, the the Red Cross will be a phone line with the Red Cross that'll be up and running by noon today, and uh, we're going to start kind of getting that information and, and start to provide some some support um, and information for for those uh, in, uh, impacted by the situation. What kind of facilities or services have been put in place for the people who had to flee for their, literally flee for their lives from the village there? Where did they all go? Well, our, our biggest focus right now is finding accommodations. So I know we've reached out to uh, as far as Abbotsford, Chilliwack, Hope, Kelowna, Kamloops, of course, and to, to find available hotel rooms. It's just a, a busy time of the year. It's the Canada Day long weekend. We have a lot of activity in the area with um, Trans Mountain and people are we're hearing a lot of stories of people without air conditioning or just simply trying to get a hotel room to cool off. So we have a lot of uh, a lot of barriers in front of us that we're trying to find solutions for. Okay, like right now, I guess you're trying to do um, like a head count. Are you encouraging people to phone in and and let and let the emergency response center know they're safe, like the residents of the village? That would be great. I know the Red Cross yeah. line will be providing information, and, and uh, there'll be information coming out from us, from uh, from our EOC, as well as other multiple partners, to uh, with links for information to just ensure that everyone's safe and we can get an accurate count and make sure that uh, we are providing the services we can. Okay, what do you guys need right now? Are you getting the help you need from the province and and, and other authorities? Certainly, we are in contact with them. Uh, we're talking to local MPs, local MLAs. Um, uh, ministers with the provincial government as well. So everyone's engaged. Uh, we are just uh, pulling this together, given that this has happened so quickly and unexpectedly. Scott, I, I know I'm speaking for the listeners when I offer you my my sympathies for what has happened to the village of Lytton. I hope everyone got out, and I know you're working hard to make to account for everyone. Thanks for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you. Our team is motivated, and uh, we're in good spirits, so we will continue to push on. Right, welcome back to the show as we continue discussing the wildfires in British Columbia. 53 separate new wildfires have ignited in our province just over the last two days. There are 77 fires burning in the province right now. Most tragically is the situation in the village of Lytton where a fire ignited there yesterday afternoon. Residents given just minutes notice to evacuate, but 250 people uh, live in that village. It's still uncertain how many got out. Hopefully everyone. Uh, they're still trying to do a head count there. Absolutely tragic situation that we're watching unfold here. Uh, I got uh, Brad Viss standing by, the local Conservative MP. <clears throat> Just very quickly, though, uh, have a listen to more from Tiffany Calwart haugen who is a, a resident of Lytton. I've been texting with her this morning, and she lost her home uh, in, in Lytton. After she fled the village, have a listen here. She describes it. Um, I've, right from the get-go, I've just assumed it's gone because, I mean, when I left, there were, it was, I got out of my car on Main Street, 
around the corner from my house, and I could feel it on my skin. It was right behind my in-law's house up on the tracks. And, yeah, and I've tried to connect to my security cameras, and it's nothing. It won't connect. Tiffany Colwert-Haugen there is a Lytton resident. She's absolutely devastated. Let's check in with the local MP now, Brad Viss. He is the conservative MP for the riding of Mission, Matsqui, Fraser Canyon. I've uh, been working uh, to coordinate the response. I'm pleased to welcome him. Uh, Mr. Viss, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for taking the time. And my sympathies to you and everyone in your riding and your, all your constituents who are going through this terrible situation right now. What is your understanding of the, of the current status of the situation at the moment? Yeah, um, the, this morning the, the government of Canada in, in, issued a um, in, like a, a report on the emergency situation. The most up to date information I have is that ninety percent of the village has been destroyed. Um, oh. The all of the critical infrastructure for BC Hydro, uh, the railways, and TELUS has been destroyed. So like cell phone coverage and telecommunications is out in the area. Um, so the situation is pretty dire. Um, and as Scott Hildebrand apt, um, aptly described earlier on your show, um, the most important thing that we're all sort of working on is just communicating with people to make sure that they're reporting in to the TNRD um, to get a proper head count of, of uh, all of the people who are impacted by this. But really what I'm hearing from constituents right now, because as you know, my riding goes from Abbotsford all the way up in Fraser Canyon, is that it happened so quickly, just like the, the woman you, were reco- you had on just before. It happened so quickly that people literally just had to drop everything they were doing and get out of town. Um, as you know, Lytton is, a, is in a very unique geographic spot in Canada. It's where the Thompson and the Fraser Rivers meet. Um, so it's pretty significant for First Nations as well. Um, and it's also the most hottest place in Canada ever. And just three days yeah. ago, I was so worried about another forest fire incident in the area. And I was praying, I'm like, God, I really don't ho- hope we don't have a forest fire here because it would be really, really bad right now. So we're really in a, in a worst case scenario at the moment. And we're, again, we're just trying to work with local authorities, BC Wildlife Services, BC Wildfire Services to make sure that everyone's accounted for and that they're safe. Yeah. Because when this happened, and it happened so quickly that people went north to Lillooet, they went south to Boston Bar, uh, they went to Kamloops, they went to Spence Bridge and Ashcroft. So really, everyone just kind of spread out. Um, and so just making sure that the federal government is involved appropriately, um, Indigenous Services Canada, Public Safety Canada, uh, that we're working with the provincial government and doing everything we can to get a handle on the situation. In the fire. Yeah, this is really the most serious and pressing situation right now is to make sure everyone's accounted for and to do a head count because, like you say, this w- erupted with such short notice and people literally had minutes to, to flee for their lives and they just fanned out to the area and they went to different centers. There's emergency evacuation centers that have been set up in Lillooet and Merritt, but like you said, other people, it sounds like, went to Cash Creek, some went to Ashcroft. They, they just got out of there where, wherever they could. So the effort now is... Yeah. yeah, so the effort now is to uh, to account for everyone and hopefully, hopefully, everyone everyone got out. It sounds like you were talking about uh, the forest fire, and I know there's lots of fires burning in the region. It sounds like in this situation, though, it may we don't know that we don't know this for sure, but it might have been a, 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 a fire that started right in the village. Is that what you're hearing? Um, it, I am hearing that the, the fire may have and I can't confirm this information. 
I know CN Railway is in an emergency meeting right now, and I've reached out to them already, but I have yet to uh, receive up-to-date information. But uh, from the TNRD, I was informed that the forest fire, the fire in the village may have started as a result of a passing train and the sparks from the tracks, yes. Right, which shows you that just how tinder dry the conditions are. I mean, this is a village that recorded the highest temperatures ever recorded in our country for like three days in a row. So this village has been absolutely baked and scorched by the heat wave, tinder dry conditions. You've got wind, you've got, you've got no precipitation in the forecastle. I mean, this is a dangerous situation and obviously this is tragic for what happened to this village, but are you concerned about other, about other population centers in the area? I mean, there are, are there any other fires in your constituency that are threatening any, threatening any other, uh, towns or towns or villages? Yes, there's, um, some fires uh, in Pavilion, which is north of Lillooet. Um, I was also getting reports of some, some brush fires just south of, uh, Lytton as well, um, between Lytton and Boston Bar. There, there's other reports closer to Kamloops, possible forest fires. So we're really in a bad situation right now um, as it relates to forest fires in BC. Um, but that said, it, it, our, prob- our provincial authorities, they, they generally know how to handle these situations. So I'm confident in the work that Scott's doing right now at the TNRD to coordinate all these things. And, to make, and, and I, I, everyone's doing everything they possibly can to get a handle on the situation. But right now, things are evolving so rapidly uh, that there are a lot of moving parts. And but making sure that people are safe, making sure that the right fire crews are in place. As Scott mentioned, my constituents in the Fraser Valley were going up uh, to to the forest fires to assist. And uh, that's the kind of stuff we like to see happen right away. And that's happening. Brad Viss, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. I've seen a video at the farther end of town from where I live and my husband's grandparents' house that was probably 100 years old at the very edge of town was going up in flames. So I don't think anything's left. Okay, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith as we continue talking about the wildfire situation in British Columbia. And that was the voice of Tiffany Calwart Haugen, a resident of Lytton who fled for her life along with other residents of the village in the path to get out of the path of that fast-moving fire that ripped through the town yesterday. And heartbreakingly, there you hear her describe uh, the town going up in flames. I spoke to town officials earlier on the show today. They fear that most of the town may have been, most of the village may have been consumed in this fire. This is a tragic situation, and people have fanned out uh, from Lytton to other areas, other regions, and population centers to get away from the fire. Officials now desperately doing a head count to make sure Hopefully everyone got out. Let's check in now with Jackie Taggart, Liberal MLA, for the constituency affected here, Fraser Nicola. And I'm pleased to welcome her. Jackie, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Jackie, I'm sorry the situation in your constituency, this emergency that we have. What can you say? Uh, can you give us an update on what you understand has happened in the current situation? Well, it's an absolutely devastating time for the people of Lytton. And... Um, the, all of us are waiting to, uh, with bated breath to make sure that everyone uh, got out safely. The fire moves so quickly, and of course, Lytton is well known for how hot it is and yeah. for the wind that goes through that valley, which is, um, you know, not um, ultimate uh, conditions when you're looking at a wildfire. 
So the number one number one uh, thing today is to make sure that everyone's safe and that they have the supports that they have. Okay, often in these situations, we imagine a, a forest fire getting too close to a town or a village and spreading to the village. It sounds like that this fire may have erupted right in the town, which has been baking under these record-breaking heat waves and temperatures, the highest temperatures ever recorded in Canada in Lytton for three days in a row, just scorching hot, tinder dry. And it sounds like the fire may have actually started right in the village and then quickly raced out of control. Is that your understanding of what may have happened here? I have not had any confirmation as to how the fire started. But I know for certain that it spread um, like wildfire. Uh, And our experience with wildfire from the 2017 year is that the behaviors of fires um, today are um, incredibly different than what we used to see. And with the heat that was in Lytton this week, it would have been unbelievable conditions for a fire to spark and to um, move through the community so fast. Yeah, one of the one of the challenges right now is, as you said, is making sure that everyone got out, and it's it's proving to be difficult because everyone just running for their lives on such short notice, they just fanned out everywhere. So some people went to evacuation centers in Merritt and Lillooet. Others may have gone to Cash Creek and Ashcroft. So people just spread out as they got away from this fire. So it's making it difficult to track everyone down at the moment. Do you um are are you satisfied or are happy with the uh, the evacuation? Uh, and the rescue efforts at, at this point, I mean, we got evacuation centers in Lillooet and Merritt. Uh, are they uh, staffed, adequately staffed, and they got everything they need there? Well, I truly believe that everyone's doing the absolute best they can. I mean, yeah. this was um, so such a fast fire that um, in a normal evacuation, we would have evacuation centers set up. We would have people understanding where they needed to go and register, and it would be a much more controlled situation. But this situation was just so instantaneous that people went to wherever they could feel safe. And so the, the challenge today will be to, um, to get uh, registrations where people are and to, um, to make sure that people um, who are missing family members can find out where they are and yeah. and uh, meet up. Oh yeah, this is what we hope. We it's hope that. Horrendous. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, it's terrible situation, and not knowing is maybe the worst of it. Is people pray that everyone got out. There are other fires burning in the region. Are there other fires uh, threatening other population centers? Yes, um, we have we have three uncontrolled fires in in uh, Fraser Nicola right now. Of course, the one at Lytton, the George Road fire, um, and the one in in the community. We have the McKay Creek fire on West Pavilion that I understand last night might have jumped uh, the Fraser River, and that brings all kinds of um, extra precautions. People are evacuated out there, and we have the Sparks Lake fire at Kamloops Lake, and we have evacuation alerts up the Dead Man Valley and at Skeechison. So we're pretty much on fire um, throughout the riding and um, you know I want to say to uh, everyone that the wildfire service is doing an absolutely um, incredible job uh, looking at how hot it is outside and the behaviors of these fires but people need to be really really careful about going in the backcountry we have a long weekend coming up where we've just been given 
sort of a freedom uh, path from uh, COVID-19. And um, I, I want to urge people to really think twice about going out into the backcountry. We're dry, we're hot, and any kind of spark can start a fire. And people need to know where you are. We don't want you to find yourself in a situation where you don't know how to get out. So, um, you know, as much as everyone is is just biting at the bit to get out and uh, do some fun stuff out in the out in the back country. This is not the time. We are we are tinder dry. We are um, like any kind of spark could start start a fire, and um, and we are our our first responders are pushed to the limit. Yeah. I think that's very wise, everything you just said there. You've been the MLA in the region there for quite some time. Is this You've been through a lot of these wildfire situations in the past. It's just a fact of life. I just wonder, though, is this the worst you've ever seen at the moment? This, uh, the devastation of the village of Lytton is, um, is, is absolutely incredible. And to think about some of those videos we saw on Facebook of people leaving yeah. that area, I mean, the 2017 fire, the Elephant Hill fire that went through here and took out a trailer park and took out the houses at the Ashcroft Indian Reserve was also devastating. It's, it's, um, I mean, we have an awareness of wildfire that, um, you know, everybody in the province should have. It, the behaviors of the fires are not like they used to be. And we have uh, weather patterns that have changed. And uh, we may need to rethink about um, how our summers go. Jackie Taggart, thank you for coming on, and we're hoping for good news. Let's hope everyone got out of there, and uh, thank you for your advocacy and your time here today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, welcome back to the show. Are you ready for the Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo? The opening ceremony is scheduled for Friday, July 23rd. So just three weeks from tomorrow, uh, the Olympic flame will be lit in Tokyo in the Olympic Stadium. This is a long road to these Olympic Games. It looked like at one point they would get canceled again. Remember they were canceled last year. A lot of people wanted them to be canceled again because of COVID-19. But the games organizers determined that the show will go on. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jules Boykoff from the Pacific University of Oregon. He is the author of the great book, Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Professor Boykoff, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Okay, I'm just reading some of the recent headlines here about the uh, the Olympic Games and some of the worries in Japan uh, with staging these games. It sounds like a lot of people in Japan wanted these games games canceled. Is uh, is that what the polls are still saying in Japan that most people didn't want the games to go ahead? That's correct. A couple of weeks ago, we saw polls that showed more than eighty percent of the public in Japan did not want the games to happen this summer. The numbers have softened a little bit in some of the recent polling, as one you might expect as the games get closer and people resign themselves to the reality. But some recent news out of Japan has really raised alarm bells again, including a report just yesterday in Japan that said that Olympic athletes who are identified as a close contact to a positive COVID-19 case 
will maybe be able to participate in the Olympics even during their 14-day quarantine period. So you can imagine how that went over in Japan. So a little three weeks, you're right, but it feels like there's still a long ways to go. Okay, let me see if I got that straight. So you're saying that you, if you've got an Olympic athlete who's been in close contact with someone who's positive for COVID, they would is that mm-hmm. the deal? They'd still be allowed to compete? Like, would they normally have been required to uh, to isolate? That's correct. They would be yeah. required to have a 14-day quarantine period yeah. to contact trace, which is the responsible thing to do. But they just open the door, the organizers of the Tokyo Olympics and the Japanese government, open the door to the possibility that they might be able to figure out ways of having them participate even during their 14-day quarantine period because of the fact that the Olympics are this, for many, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And putting them in quarantine might mean people miss their entire Olympics, so they're trying to figure out ways around that. Of course, that flies in the face of global public health and, of course, local public health as well. And that's why so many people are jumping up and down about it in Japan right now. Yeah. What's the situation with COVID in Japan right now? Like a lot of developed countries, the United States and Canada, we're, we are getting on top of this thing. I mean, more and more people are being vaccinated. You, what, what is the vaccination rate like in uh, Japan? Right now, the vaccination rate uh, for fully vaccinated people is around 11% of the population, so relatively low compared to other developed countries. But, um, you know, the other thing about it is that they're talking about letting the local population into the stadium. In fact, while the top COVID advisor from Japan, Shigeru Omi, first of all said it's, quote, not normal to go ahead with the Olympics during a global health crisis, and second, he said that, you know, there shouldn't even be fans in the stadium, given the low vaccination rates in Japan. They've already said that you can't have international fans at the, at the games, but you can, they're saying, have local fans, despite that low vaccination rate we're talking about, Mike. And they capped it at 10,000 spectators, 50 percent of arenas, whether they're indoors or outdoors, flying in the face of the best medical advice. Do you got to be vaccinated to get in? The rules aren't exactly clear at this point. We're waiting on that and waiting on a number of rules, actually, when it comes to these upcoming Olympics. Okay, speaking of Jules Boykoff about the uh, the upcoming Tokyo Olympic Games, what about uh, the emperor? I was reading about uh, Emperor Nirohito is uh, worried about the Olympic Games going forward. Does that have, I mean, he has no political power there, right? He's just like, a, you know, head of state figurehead, I guess. Yes, he's very much yeah. a head of state figurehead, but yeah. it's very rare for the emperor to weigh in on any public issues of the day. He's usually just a pretty face doing things on national holidays. So to have the emperor show concern around the Olympics was important symbolically, and it also raised the eyebrows of people across Japan and even around the world. Right. And despite that, though, it's full steam ahead for the games to go ahead, right? I mean, it doesn't look like the uh, the IOC has has blinked for a minute here, or has there been any indication that they might buckle under this? So the Japanese government seems full steam ahead, too, right? Everyone seems full steam ahead right now. The International right. Olympic Committee, the local Tokyo organizers, and the Japanese government, um, they're putting pretty tight strictures on... Uh, reporters that are going there. It's been some interesting news just in the last few hours about sports editors from more than 10 major U.S. media outlets sent a letter of protest to the Tokyo organizers around the rules and restrictions. They say they're undermining press freedoms. And some of the big name outlets include New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, Associated Press, and other publications. And so really, despite the fact that the game seems going ahead, they're getting from all manner of places, whether it's the athletes concerned about the protocols 
or the media that has these strictures where they can't interview people uh, in the first few days while they're there. And so there's concern about press freedom as well. Right. Speaking of Jules Boykoff, Pacific University of Oregon, um, it's interesting, you know, to watch this debate about whether the Olympics should go ahead. I mean, I've been watching some of the uh, the Euro uh, soccer tournament in uh, in Europe over the last couple of weeks, and in some of those cases, they've got it varies from city to city in Europe how many people are allowed into the stands. Uh, in some case, in some cities in Europe, they've had like the place packed. And in others, they've had a lower concentration of people. But I mean, most most of the games are going on in front of uh, in front of big crowds. And that's a huge yeah. uh, tournament, and they seem are they having any problems there? I mean, it seems to be going okay. Well, just yesterday, it was reported that nearly two thousand COVID nineteen cases in Scotland are linked to people watching the Euro twenty twenty football matches, including. Uh, two-thirds of those were people who traveled to London to watch Scotland's game against England in, in mid-June. So there's going to be a little bit of a lag period. That only came out around two weeks after the match against England. So that's something for us to all keep an eye on. What might seem to be on the surface going well can pop out in a couple of weeks once the data starts to come in. And when in this case, it's not looking good, the data out of Scotland. Okay, I know that you are a you're a sports fan. I mean, you're a, you're an athlete yourself, right? Absolutely, yeah. I've yeah. had the good fortune of having a professional soccer career, represented the U.S. Olympic soccer team in international competition. I had it a big part of my life for a long time. I'm glad you said that, so I don't just come across as some grumpy academic down here in Portland trying to ruin everybody's life when it right. comes to sports. Absolutely, <laughs> right? Okay, so so you're a fan and you're a former elite athlete, um, but you think that the the health can the public health concerns should take precedence and you believe that you believe that game should not be going forward right i do in fact i made the argument in the new york times in may that we should not be pressing ahead with an optional sporting spectacle in the midst of a global health pandemic after all we need to listen to the medical officials in japan and around the world who are clamoring for the olympics to be canceled it's time to listen to science and to halt what appears to be a pretty dangerous charade i mean i argued that the Olympics are loved because there's this sort of audacious impracticality to them. But during a global health pandemic, that same audacious impracticality can lead to real trouble in terms of global public health. So I'm in favor of shutting these games down. I know it gives me no joy whatsoever to say that to athletes, many of whom contact me behind the scenes. Numerous Tokyo 2020 bound athletes have reached out to me behind the scenes and I've been in conversation with them. And I tell them it doesn't make me happy to say this, but Sometimes things are bigger than sports, and this is one of those things. I would think that most athletes would want to go come hell or high water. Like most of them have got maybe one shot to to get to the Olympics. This might be their only opportunity. So wouldn't they wouldn't they want desperately want to go? Typically, absolutely. I mean, what makes a lot of athletes elite athletes is their belief in themselves, their deep belief in their own invincibility. Hey, I was there at one time, Mike, and if you would have asked me as a 19-year-old playing for the U.S. Olympic team whether I wanted to go participate in the Olympics during a pandemic, I bet I probably would have said yes as a 19-year-old. I mean, and so I don't blame the athletes, nor do I think that they should be the only people in charge of deciding whether the Olympics go on. Their voices are necessary, absolutely. But now is the time to meet, listen to medical officials. This is a medical situation, after all. Okay, well, I think you make a powerful case, but on the other hand, like, this is big money, right? And so we're talking billions of dollars in TV contracts. We got contracts that have been let by the organizing committee of the Olympic Games. Like at, at some point, does, does money trump everything? Unfortunately, it might sound crude, but it's 
true. The money is the main driver pushing forward with the Olympics during these times. If I can put a finer point on it, I would say that the International Olympic Committee is perfectly happy to have a made-for-TV event with nobody in the stands if need be, because 73% of the International Olympic Committee's revenues come through broadcasters, like in the United States where I am, NBC. Another 18% come from corporate sponsors, long-term corporate worldwide partners such as Airbnb, Alibaba, Coca-Cola, Panasonic. They're kicking in millions upon millions to be corporate sponsors. And if there's no fans in the stands, that money continues to flow. So when more than nine out of every $10 that's flowing into the International Olympic Committee's coffers comes from those two sources, you can see why they feel like they can press ahead with an Olympics even during a global pandemic. Right. So when this thing, I mean, the train's going down the track here, and, and I don't. I think it's very, very unlikely that the games will be stopped at this point. I'm, I, I suspect you'd agree with that, right? I mean, it's too late. Probably too late to stop it now. Right. Well, if there is an incredible spike in COVID cases, and there has been more cases, the last day it was reported on June 30th, more cases than any recent day, 714 cases. The appropriate thing, of course, would be to, to shut it down. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, it's funny you're using the train metaphor. I actually had a friend in Japan who I was speaking with the other day, and she told me that she feels like it's a slow motion train wreck, and she's on the train because she's in Japan. And, you know, you really got to feel for people that are thinking about these 200 countries sending more than 11,000 athletes just for the Olympics alone to their country, none of whom are required to be vaccinated. And maybe they might even have COVID now and be allowed to participate in terms of today's news. And, you know, you have some sympathy for these folks that they don't want to have this event in their country. Okay, last question. Last question for you, uh, Jules. Will you be watching if the games go ahead? Sure. I mean, I follow a lot of these uh, athletes will be in Tokyo. I said they reach out to me. I've been in conversation with them. I have some particular athletes I'll be rooting for because of that, for other political reasons, if you will. And yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it behooves me to watch the games since I'm a scholar of the Olympics and I need to keep track of everything that's going on. Absolutely. Okay, let's hope it goes well. All for the, all for the best here as we go forward and see what happens. Jules Boykoff, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you, Mike.